Welcome to Desert City Church's podcast. Thanks for listening in. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We are a new church serving neighborhoods on the edge of North Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona. Our sermons are ongoing conversations around a sacred text or scripture in which we find the story of Jesus. We hope they inspire you to love God and others more. If we can serve you in any way or answer any questions about our community, please don't hesitate to ask. You can find out more info at DesertCityChurch.com. We've been talking about how Lent is a season uh, where we can use this axiom that Christ must increase and I must decrease. And we, we hold up our cup for Lent uh, to be filled. We empty it of the things that don't need to be there, and we trust that Christ is enough. One of the things that we've done as a church um, is we've invited you to read through the Gospel of Luke uh, through this season. So we, we have a, a bookmark. I don't know if you, you're able to grab one of the bookmarks. Uh, but there's a, a, a daily reading in the bookmark where we're going through this gospel together. And it's a fascinating story. It was written uh, by a man named Luke. Uh, the, the sequel is the book of Acts. Um, Luke is a, is a doctor, tradition tells us. He's very detail-oriented. Um, he's also uh, the only author of a gospel who's, uh, who's not Jewish. So he has kind of a Western mind. Uh, and uh, it's, it's exciting to read through. And we're, going to, we're also preaching through it on Sundays. So... Uh, you, can, you can kind of follow along. We're just diving into this gospel for the month. Um, today's story uh, is a fascinating story. And uh, what we find is that as, as Luke would, would tell these stories, um, it, it's almost like an artist painting a picture. Uh, we, we have these stories of Jesus that seem to be very like rigid and black and white. But when we read Luke, he adds color to everything. There's so much interesting detail going on. And the story that we'll look at today takes place at a dinner party. It's at the house of uh, a man who has invited Jesus into his home, and, uh, and they're, they're sitting down having dinner. Um, and what we find throughout the life of Jesus is there's this fellowship of the table. He spends time regularly dining with people, people from uh, a very diverse group of people that he would dine with. And uh, the table fellowship uh, in the... Uh, ancient Near East, um, was very important to community. To dine with someone, to have someone to your house, uh, was, was a time of uh, connection, a time of bonding, a time of reconciliation. It was also a time of, of acceptance of that person. And so as Jesus is at dinner with this uh, man, it's not just a dinner, there's so much more going on here. This is a, a dinner that's loaded with meaning. In the... Uh, Ancient Near East, uh, if you would go to someone's house, there was a couple things that you would do just for hospitality. Uh, the first thing is that you would, you would greet your guest with a kiss. You would, you would grab them by the shoulder, you would hug them, and you would give them a kiss, kiss on the cheek. We see this in sometimes uh, like Eastern European cultures. For us Americans, it kind of freaks us out because like personal space. Uh, but you would greet a guest with a kiss, and it was a kiss of peace. It meant that you were welcome here. The second thing that, that you would do is... Uh, you would provide uh, feet washing for them. You're traveling around uh, in the Mideast, and uh, it's hot outside. You're walking everywhere. You're wearing sandals. So when you get to a house, a guest who is very hospitable would, would offer you water to wash your, t- your feet. It would cool your feet off, but it would also clean them. And that would be a great act of your welcome here. And then the third thing that you would do for a guest 
uh, would be that you would, uh, you, would, you would take some sweet incense or, or perfume and uh, anoint their head with it, anoint their feet with it. Uh, because after traveling, uh, you probably have a little bit of body odor going on. So that's one thing that you would do to make the guests feel welcome uh, would be to sprinkle this on them. These are very uh, traditional, hospitable acts uh, in this time period. And Jesus, at this point in his ministry, he's hanging out around the Sea of Galilee in this town called Capernaum, which was kind of one of his uh, homes at, the time, at this time of his ministry. He goes to this small town called Nain, uh, which uh, would be kind of a, a town that was out uh, in the middle of nowhere, small town. Some of you were on spring break this week. You might have gone to different small towns throughout Arizona. We have friends that have a cabin up in Pine um, get away, and it's, it's a different rhythm of life. Jesus is going back and forth between uh, Capernaum, which is a fishing village that he lives in, and he goes into this town called Nain. And here he runs across this man who invites him to his house for dinner. And this is where the story picks up in Luke chapter 7. And we'll start reading. If you want to follow along, it should be on the screen behind me. But in Luke 7, starting in verse 36, the story goes like this. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating with the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, and she kissed them, and she poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And Jesus tells this parable. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, and denarii was... Uh, a source of, uh, uh, what, a, a denarii is a coin. One coin would be equal to about a, a day's worth of, of uh, wages. So one owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them do you think would love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who canceled, uh, had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Interesting story, especially when we consider the context of what's going on here. There's three characters involved. There's uh, Simon, who's a Pharisee. There's this unnamed woman who we know has questionable reputation. And there's Jesus. 
What we know about Simon is that he's a Pharisee. And Pharisees kind of have a bad reputation in the Gospels, right? If you're, if you're familiar with the Gospels, they seem to be uh, always uh, getting Jesus into trouble or trying to get Jesus into trouble. But the Pharisees are one of the largest uh, sects of Judaism in this time period. Uh, they're, they're well-educated. They're upper-middle class. They're professionals. And they're actually, believe it or not, good people. The Pharisees have this desire to see God restore Israel, their nation, in their time. And so they thought that, you have to remember, they're, they're conquered by the Romans at this point. You can imagine if, if we were conquered as a country by Canada. <laughs> Everyone laughs at that. Imagine if we were conquered, though. We would have this unbelievable desire for freedom, this hope uh, that we could be our own people, that we wouldn't have this foreign oppressor over us. And it's the same way for these Pharisees. They have this desire that the Romans would leave. And for them, they have this belief and this hope that is very much rooted in their sacred scripture, that God would intervene for them at some point. And they thought the way that this would happen is that we need to become holy. We need to become right with God. We need to become clean. And God would be moved to respond to our holiness. And it's, we've, we've messed things up. We've, we've been led astray, and God is punishing us for that. So there was this deep in their, uh, their theology, which, which very much guided their actions, was this call to holiness. So oftentimes when we, we find them interacting with Jesus, they're upset because Jesus is hanging out with someone like this lady who has a questionable reputation. And for them, this is like working against what we feel like God's work done in our life. We see some of the Pharisees are actually helpful to Jesus, and then others of them uh, are quite dangerous. They're ultimately the ones that uh, lead to Jesus on the cross, right? But here's this Pharisee named Simon, and he invites Jesus into his house. And as we read that, we have to wonder, what are the motives of this dinner we consider the reputation of the Pharisees, what they're up to, maybe, maybe Simon is uh, a friend. Maybe Simon is genuinely interested in what Jesus is doing, and he invites him over. But the details of the story uh, probably would disagree with that, because he hasn't been hospitable at all. In fact, he's been disrespectful in his hospitality. Maybe this uh, Pharisee has another motive. Maybe he's one of those who's trying to capture Jesus, trying to catch him, trying to set up some sort of trap. Maybe he's even planted this woman there to put Jesus in an awkward situation. Maybe he's there as an adversary. But he interacts with Jesus in a way where he calls him rabbi. It's a very respected title. So we're not really sure if that's his motive. He seems to be interacting with Jesus. There's another possibility, is that maybe this man, Simon, the Pharisee, uh, is a collector of celebrities. Like the fact that he would have someone like Jesus, this young, compelling, uh, somewhat controversial rabbi at his house, uh, shows the community that he's influential. Um, he's what we might today call a name dropper, right? Name dropper. Um, and, it, and it seems that he's, he's somewhat interested in, in what this Jesus is all about, but he also likes the image of having Jesus at his house. And he's kind of like, in a half-patronizing way, dining with Jesus. And as he dines with Jesus, uh, we kind of get this picture of the setting. 
the guess, my guess is that if he owns a house, most of the houses at this uh, time of these well-to-do people would have an inner courtyard. And the house would be built around this courtyard. It would create this hollow square. And as you would be having dinner, and you would have guests at that dinner, um, if you had someone like a rabbi come to town, you would invite the community to come into your courtyard. You would leave the gate open so that people could come and they could listen, hoping to kind of glean these pearls of wisdom from the rabbi. And that would explain why this woman's able to get access to this dinner party. It's open to the community. And if this uh, Pharisee is having Jesus over for purposes of the show, look what I can do, having Jesus at my house. Probably like the worst case scenario would happen here, having this woman show up. And so he's offended. He's not hospitable to Jesus, but he's offended that this lady would show up and make a scene out of his dinner party. Then we have the woman. She doesn't have a name. It says that she has uh, questionable character. Um, and it's interesting that we don't know her name because Luke loves details. And yet for some reason he leaves this obscure. He doesn't tell us what her name is. Scholars would point to parallel passages that, that might point out who this woman is. But Luke leaves it obscure. Maybe we should too. But what he does say is that uh, she has questionable character. And what the Pharisee says is that she's a sinner. And it doesn't tell us what the sin is. Uh, we just kind of assume it's that she's a prostitute. But it never says that word. We just assume it. Um, we assume it from the accusation from the Pharisee. We assume it because if you're like me, it's always easier to name sin in other people, right? It doesn't tell us what her sin is. It just says that she's a sinner. And she comes to Jesus, and I don't know how long it was before she breaks down crying. I mean, Jesus says, like, she's been kissing his feet since she gets there. I don't know if she's listening to the conversation, and, and she's hearing Jesus speak. Maybe he's giving teachings like the Sermon on the Mount. Who knows? But something happens in her that she breaks down. And the action that she does is everything that the Pharisee is supposed to do. These acts of hospitality. All of her actions are symbolic of having a guest in your house. Jewish women would carry around a necklace uh, with a jar of perfume. It's called the alabaster, and it was very expensive. She breaks this open. She pours it out on Jesus. She weeps, and this is like sobbing. This is, I think Marcy calls it ugly crying, right? <laughs> She's sobbing, creating enough tears that she's actually washing his feet with her tears. And then she does something that would be uh, unthinkable. She lets her hair down, and she washes his feet with her hair. Now, for those of us that are grossed out by that, get beyond just the point of, of, of what's happening. Uh, this is a, a very radical act. Because women wouldn't let their hair unbound, especially in public. And the fact that she is doing this to wash Jesus' feet an act that she would only do in private shows that in the, in, the, in the presence of Jesus, she's able to let her guard down. And then she spends something on him uh, that's sacrificial. What she's doing here is, is she's worshiping. Something about her actions is an act of, of love and hospitality, of lavishly giving to Jesus. She's worshiping him. And we're left to consider these two attitudes in the presence of Jesus. When we think about the attitude of this Pharisee, 
Simon was conscious of no need and therefore felt no love. And he received no love, received no forgiveness. Simon's impression of himself was of righteousness. When I consider kind of who Simon is and what he's doing, um, I always seem to identify the most with them, right? Like, I, I grew up at the church. I know all of the religious language I'm supposed to know. I'm professional clergy. Seems like I would identify with Simon, sometimes very satisfied in my own actions, righteousness with God. And then God works outside of the box that I've put him in. He does something unconventional that I wasn't expecting. And Simon isn't able to recognize it because of his own heart. Then you have the attitude of this woman, conscious of nothing else than a clamant need. Therefore was overwhelmed with love of him who could supply what her need was in forgiveness. She comes to Jesus, probably full of shame, full of an identity that is defined by her actions in the community, by everyone else's assumptions about her, by her past. And she comes to Jesus out of brokenness. One attitude of righteousness, I've got it all together. One attitude of desperation and brokenness. And Jesus responds to the brokenness. For the author Luke, the ideal state of one in the presence of Jesus is humility, authenticity, confession, and dependency. What we find is that God moves and acts in our brokenness. There's an awareness of her situation that opens her up to receive from Christ. And consider kind of the application of this. What does this mean for us? One thing I like to ask is, where do you find yourself in the story? Maybe the actions of the Pharisee resonates with you like it would with me. Maybe the actions of this woman do. As you consider things in your own life that you are ashamed of, things of your own life that have been assumed by other people, things that you've been accused of. Maybe you identify with this woman. The application is we consider Simon's life and what he does and doesn't do leads us to this moment of confession that we must come to before Jesus. Confession is a, a word that's loaded. There's this, it has a lot of weight, has a lot of baggage when it comes to the church, when it comes to us as followers of Jesus. But it was given to us as a gift, as something that's actually really healthy for us. I love what N.T. Wright says on this passage. He says, The Pharisee has never come to terms with the depths of his own heart. And so doesn't appreciate God's generous love when it sits in person at his own table. For Luke, true faith happens when someone looks at Jesus and discovers God's forgiveness. And the sign and proof of that faith is love. There's this moment uh, that is missed by some of the, the Pharisee. This idea of our own awareness of our own brokenness leads us to authenticity. It leads us to being open to transformation. This woman gets it, and the Pharisee doesn't. When we consider the idea of confession, it's basically this. It's owning up to reality. It's owning up to reality. And it shouldn't be considered as something that we do because of 
the weight of our guilt or the weight of our shame is actually a release. It's something that gets us right to come to confess our brokenness. And this is what we see in this woman. She's able to do it. She's desperate. Confession is uh, something that a term might be hijacked by our culture. Something that you have to go and do um, so that everyone knows the worst things about you. But it's a spiritual discipline where we become authentic people. And the hope is that the church should be very in tune with its brokenness, willing to share it, willing to ask for help, willing to say, uh, this is something I'm struggling with. And when we consider who Christians are in our culture today, uh, do we consider a people who are authentic and open? People that are honest and humble. If we consider what confession should be, we should be some of the most real people in our culture. Sometimes we get into image management and we forget uh, to be in touch with our brokenness. But then from this brokenness, what we find is that this woman is led to worship. We come to a moment of confession, but then we come to a moment of worship. And it's interesting that the terminology Jesus uses here, he doesn't say, like, she's been forgiven because she's been forgiven much, but he says that she loves because she's been forgiven. When she comes to terms with her own brokenness, when she is, receives the forgiveness and acceptance of, of Christ, it leads her to great love. It leads her to worshiping lavishly. Worship is this outward response to God's great love, giving him our attention and our affection, uninhibited. The story of King David, uh, where he talks about giving to the Lord, he says, I will not offer the Lord which, that which has cost me nothing. There's this response that says, I give you my all, Lord. I give you my heart. I give you the things that I hold on to, the things that are sacred to me. I lay it all at your feet. In the presence of Jesus here at the feet of Jesus, this woman gives him all of her attention and affection. There's a few things in my life that capture my attention and affection in such a way. Uh, I think back to uh, when I fell in love and got married to Marcy. Um, she was a girl that I was crazy about from the time I was in freshman in high school. And uh, didn't start dating her until I was a freshman in college. So there's like four years of longing. Some people call it obsession. I call it dedication, hard work. Um, but when I finally was able to, to realize that she liked me back, every single moment of my day was consumed with affection and attention, right? Uh, maybe you've experienced that in your life where like all you can think about is the thing that you love. Like for me, I was willing to do anything to give my attention and affection to her. Um, falling in love has a way of, of capturing our attention. For me, I remember in college, doing whatever it took, uh, selling my truck to buy a ring, um, you know, making bad choices financially, whatever it took. <laughs> and then I landed her, yes. Um, and, uh, and then something changes as you, you, uh, you get married and you become comfortable. 
Something changes with all of your attention and affection. Maybe you experience that in relationships as well. There's this initial thing that just grabs you and makes you feel alive. I was joking that uh, Buddy Malway is here today. Um, Buddy's been doing Exos, which is a, a workout routine, and he looks pretty fit. And Christine's like, yeah, he ain't quite as fit as uh, when I first married him. <laughs> I think the same thing happens spiritually. We have this moment where we come to Jesus. We feel alive. As our attention, our affection, we're spiritually vibrant people. We worship lavishly. Over time, we become comfortable, become complacent. Talk to people where it's like, I, I just feel numb spiritually. It's like, I, I know God's real, I know it's true, but my life doesn't feel alive and vibrant. I think the continual pattern of confession and worship keeps us alive. It renews us. We come to this moment where we're reminded of God's grace and his love when we're in tune with our brokenness. And from that, we worship passionately. Here we see that in the story. So we consider the season of Lent, where Christ must increase in our life, where we decrease so that he can increase, where we let go of things that we put our hope in, things that we put our identity in, things that we put our pleasure in. And we say Christ is enough. Today we continue that pattern. As we consider the story of this sinful woman and this Pharisee who misses the point, we have to ask the question, where am I in the story? Where am I in the story? So you consider your life right now. So you consider your relationship with Christ. So you consider your uh, spiritual vibrancy. What are the things that have caused shame? What are the things that we're hiding? What are the things that we need to take to Jesus? What are the ways that we've missed the point? Where we sit like this Pharisee, Jesus, the personification of love, is sitting right in front of us, and we miss the point. You know where you're at today, what you're carrying, what your weight is. The man's going to come back up, and we're going to spend time reflecting. And my hope today is this, that whatever you have, whatever you're carrying, that you would lay it at the feet of Jesus. And we do this a couple ways here at Desert City. We do this by coming to the communion table, taking these sacred elements that represent the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus even. We come to the table, we examine ourselves, we're reminded of God's grace to us. But one other thing that we're going to do before we head to the table is a time of prayer, a prayer of examine. And I'm going to ask you uh, to bow your heads and to sit in silence for a bit. And as you do this, sometimes we do this and ask for a response. I'm not going to do that today. But I ask that as you bow your heads, close your eyes, that you would signal to God a desire for him uh, to work in your life, that he would stir something inside of your heart today. Maybe it's the things that you're ashamed of that you need to come and lay at his feet and confess. Maybe it's a complacency, a spiritual life that has become numb, that you need him to just rupture something and shake you free. And as we spend some time in silence, I want to pray 
a prayer that's been uh, important to God's people for thousands of years, Psalm 51. And then from there, we'll move to communion. So, Tim, if you want to come up and, and strum, let's bow our heads. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for stories like this that happened 2,000 years ago, Lord. And yet they still happen today. Many of us find ourselves in the same circumstances as these two characters. We might be like the Pharisee, Lord. We desire a relationship with you. We desire your presence. We have different motives. We have agendas. We have things figured out. We try to fit you into our life. And then, Lord, some of us are like this woman, this sinful, yet desperate shamed, but broken and open for help. Both of them, Lord, need you. All of us, Lord, need you. Lord, I ask that you would speak to us now in the silence. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin are always before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And surely I was sinful at birth and sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb and you taught me wisdom in that secret place. Clean me with the hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant a willing spirit to sustain me. As you're ready, feel free to move to communion. As always, we're here to offer prayer. If you would like anything to pray about, feel free to come grab me. I'd love to pray with you. But let's spend this time 
and responds with the elements.